You are listening to a sermon from Linworth Road Church. For more information about Linworth Road Church, please visit www.linworthroadchurch.com. We're in the third week of our series, Can I Ask That? We're taking a break from Luke's Gospel. And this morning's question is on Can I Ask That? Doesn't Christianity crush diversity? Now, the first half of this message We're going to look at this question, why it's relevant, how it became relevant. The belief that Christianity crushes diversity has become an ingrained narrative in our culture like a dogma that cannot be questioned. Then in the second half, we'll go back to the scriptures and look at the blueprint of the church to see what God intended for the church. This morning, if you are a spiritual seeker, I hope this message causes you to question the prevailing narrative. And for veteran Christians, I do have a little warning this morning. Today's topic includes the theme of multiculturalism. Now, multiculturalism has become something of a buzzword that causes Christians to freeze. Why is that? Because multiculturalism in our present world has meant not only the acceptance of other cultures, but in addition has also meant that all religious truth claims are equally the same. Now I want to assure you this morning is not about that. For the last 25 years, I have tried to stay in the conversation in the church about global missions and its engagement with other cultures. I have tried to be a learner. Much of what I will be saying this morning about multiculturalism reflects on that 25 years of learning from other committed Christians. So when you hear me say multiculturalism or multi-ethnic, please do not freeze up and assume I am saying something that I am not. Uh, What I'm saying this morning does not have some of the cultural secular baggage attached to it. So does Christianity crush diversity? This is how the question is posed in the book that inspired our series. But the more raw way to ask this objection is this. Isn't Christianity only a Western religion? Or even more skeptically, isn't Christianity a faith for white people only? And exists only to protect the interests of white men. Now, now again, a little understanding here. If you are not connected to a college campus, if you are not connected to the world that happens in some of our urban centers, our inner cities, if you have not traveled to other parts of the world, you may say, I've never met anybody with a question like this. Is it really relevant? I assure you that it is. I'm sure my, t- my friend Tom Short here, who travels all across the country speaking on college campuses, has heard the various iterations of these questions. So let's dive into my first question this morning and explore this a little more deeply. Is this a relevant question? Is it real? I'd like to share three examples. Let me just take a moment, and uh, I know I'm going here, going pretty fast, but let me just stop and pray for a moment and ask 
the Father to help us. Okay? Father, in Jesus' name this morning, as we look at a challenging subject where I think there are things that you want us to learn and to expand our understanding and to expand our hearts and to expand our love quotient, I pray that you would help us to be all learners this morning about your kingdom and the nature of your kingdom. And for those, Father, who do not yet know you, that today there may be something that draws them closer to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Last February, I was in East Asia at a small mountain retreat where we were meeting with some church leaders there, leaders indigenous to that country, and a local family was there helping prepare the meals. And this local family was very rural, and they were excited to meet somebody from the West. I don't think they had ever talked to a white person. And uh, so let me just, you show that slide there, if you could. Michelle, here's the family. Mom and a dad, a 23-year-old daughter, and an 11-year-old son. Now, the 11-year-old son is the one, he was a little honorary. But he was the one that kept the conversation going. We talked for about an hour in the freezing cold. And honestly, this young man wanted to learn how to be forgiven. It was a surreal conversation listening to his sincere questions. Mom and dad eventually peeled off. We talked about a lot of other things as well. And the daughter, who spoke good English, was able to be a bridge and interpreter for us. Because the conversation was so focused on the son, at one point, conscious of the daughter, I wondered what she was thinking. So I asked her, had she ever heard of Jesus? Oh, yes, she said. We learned about him in our classes. There were pictures of him in our textbook. We learned that Jesus is the Western God. He's the head of a Western religion. Now, what are the implications of that? It means that for someone in that learning environment, the Christian faith is only for Western people. Thus, to become a Christian means that I would need to give up my ethnic and cultural identity. Now, without doubt, this is a major obstacle around the world to the acceptance of the Christian faith. Vince Bantu is a young theologian at an evangelical seminary. His focus of research is the intersection of culture, identity, and missions. He argues that this is the number one obstacle around the globe to the spread of the Christian faith. So that's the first reason this is relevant. Here's another reason. Abounding in our culture are new theories about the nature of Jesus. Now these theories have sought to revise are to modernize the story of Jesus, to keep him up to date, as if he needs that. But in the wake of their modernization, they play loose with the facts and reject long-standing scholarship. These have been alive in the academic community for quite a while. But they hit the mainstream through Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code. You remember that, a 2003 book. It became a bestseller. It was gobbled up, selling 50 million books worldwide. Now, what new version of history did it present? Well, you remember Brown placed the life of Jesus into a fictional account 
And it all read like a high-stakes thriller. Several hundred years after the life of Christ, he imagines a secret conspiracy in the highest places of power in order to edit the memory of Jesus. The plot, you remember, revolves around the emperor Constantine, who in the 4th century sought to solidify political power. In order to do this, he needed to marry the power of the state with the moral force of the church. So what did he do? He gathers a a council of church leaders, white men at the Council of Nicaea. These men would determine the future of the church's beliefs, not for theological reasons, but for political ones. And so what was needed to bring the moral authority of the church was a divine Jesus. So in a smoke-filled room, all the stories of the Gospels that stressed Jesus' humanity were selectively eliminated, and all the Gospels that stressed his divinity show up in today's Bible. This, according to Brown, this man-made editing process was not about the true Jesus, but was about protecting political power for basically white and Western men. Now, there's a ton wrong with this, and we have often pointed out to you the appalling errors. Yet, unfortunately, though fictional, it has often been embraced as truth. And I bring it up here because its impact is to remake the Christian faith into a Western religion born of the desire to protect white European men. Now, here's the third reason that this question is relevant. In our urban centers, in our cities, amongst many blacks, there has been a rise of black people leaving the Christian faith. Now, I don't pretend to understand this. I'm white, as you notice. I live in a suburban context. There are dynamics here I'm sure I do not fully understand. So let me simply quote someone who grew up and lived in that world. Kurt Kennedy is a Christian rapper and artist. He's black. I'm not sure where he's coming from on every issue, but his vantage point allows us to see into a world not familiar to many of us. Kennedy grew up in a rough part of Washington, D.C. No father, single mother, a very challenging background that eventually led to gang violence and to prison. He went to prison, and behold, surprise, there he met Jesus in a real way. But coming to Christ evoked resistance from his black friends. Here is what he writes. Believing in Jesus can be tough all on its own, especially when you keep hearing things like, quote, how could you believe in a God that lets your ancestors be slaves? Or the all too familiar, black people weren't Christians before the transatlantic slave trade. They used Christianity to keep us enslaved. We were kings and queens in Africa before white people came and kidnapped us. Now, for those who are part of a majority culture, this is hard for us to imagine. But I would like to challenge us to walk in the shoes of those who, when they embrace the Christian faith, or in other parts of the world when they were forced to embrace Islam, they received received the gospel in the context of slavery and oppression. Yet, even with all that, with a big view in mind, Kennedy himself actually says this 
about these objections. He says these allegations are the greatest religious hoax ever foisted on the black community. And he goes on to disprove the notion that blacks were not Christians before the slave trade began. Now, we'll come back to that point in a little bit. Despite all that, Kennedy writes that in recent years, there has been a rise of black people leaving the Christian faith because of the belief that Christianity is a religion designed by white people for white people. Even if these objections, these three relevant points that I've raised from campus, from modern literature, from our urban centers, even if these objections are not raised around your neighborhood, are not raised around your water cooler, I hope you can understand how this narrative has eroded confidence in the person of Jesus and confidence in the Bible in our culture. Okay? So that's our first question. We doing okay? All right, here's our second question. How did we get here? How did this happen? And I want us to try to understand and appreciate this. Some of it, some of it is a distortion of history, as we see in Dan Brown's account and his revisionist accounts. Some of it is simply understanding what the Bible actually, misunderstanding what the Bible actually says and teaches. Some of it is the prevailing artistic representations of Jesus and of Bible characters and of church fathers that are painted and drawn through the prism of European culture. In those artistic renderings, some of the truth of the church's multicultural roots were lost. And yet there are other reasons as well. Let's take a look at this next image. This is the classic image of missionaries in the 17 and 1800s. This is probably the 1800s, maybe early 1900s. And we've told you before, we have told you the remarkable story of the missionary movement, largely from America and Great Britain, beginning in the 1700s to the non-Western world. It is an amazing story that is not widely appreciated, even in the church. And of course, this movement continues today throughout the world, though it's a far more global effort. Many nations today contribute to this effort. But in those early days, some, certainly not all, not even the majority, but some missionaries confused or mixed together the Christian faith with white European culture. They were not truly on mission. They were there for the travel experience or to explore or to gain notoriety back home. Missionary service, unlike today, was seen as heroic in the general culture. When these motives were present in missionaries, it translated to a superior, self-righteous attitudes toward the very people they were seeking to convert, and it resulted in contempt for their ethnicity and for their culture. Other Western missionaries with good hearts ended up trying to transplant a purely Western form of Christianity and a Western form of how to do church in non-Western countries. They did not have the cultural awareness. They did not have the cultural sensitivity to separate what was truly biblical 
and what was merely cultural. So, for example, in native countries where our indigenous countries where people were used to sitting on floors in circles or dancing for celebration or being openly expressive or wearing next to nothing had to learn after being Christianized how to sit neatly in rows, keep their hands on their laps, remain quiet while the pastor spoke at length and sing Western hymns while wearing Western clothing. Now that's not an exaggeration. The effect of all of this And again, much of this was done with good hearts. But the effect of all of this, the unintended consequence of all of this, was that the gospel message was understood by non-Western people that to become a Christian, I must radically give up my ethnic identity or culture. Part of my being. In other words, I must become white or European to become a Christian. And this helped to foster the notion that the Christian faith is only a Western religion. Now, far more influential than the missionary endeavor, far more influential than that, was what happened during the colonial era. I know you're getting a lot of history here, but I want you to understand the background. Here again, we have a sort of a classic picture of colonization and what happened during the colonization years. Now, We are all used to thinking of the colonial era from our perspective as Westerners. That's how we learned it. And it is true that colonial powers often brought tools and technology and resources. It's true they often, sometimes, sometimes they ended devastating and unjust practices. It's true that they created wealth, though that wealth in most cases, did not lift up the average person, the average native person. But we also must see this from the eyes of the non-West, the colonization era. Entire nations and people groups were made subject to foreign rule. They were ruled without representation. They were made to fight in wars that they had no interest in. There were scenarios of terrible oppression that led to bitter resentment and revolution. And as the oppressed people saw it, here's the key point, this is why we're going into this, as the oppressed people saw it, colonization was done by supposedly Christian nations. Again, leading to the perception from non-Western people that the gospel was conversion to the Western God and to a Western way of life. So, In this mixed and confusing history, and it is a mix of good and bad, it's a confusing history, the aftermath today is that across the world, the original multicultural vision of Jesus, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. An old Sunday school song. That the vision of Jesus' multicultural family has become very blurred. If you think this is not relevant, please consider the aversion of the West today in the great and beautiful nation of China. I wish I could tell this story. It is an amazing story. Uh, We have friends there. I have friends there who risk their lives, to be seen with me, to be associated 
with me. And it's not all religious. It's also being from the West. This aversion to the West is partly due to all the East-West history that played out on China's soil over the last three centuries. Again, if I had more time, I'd love to tell this story. It is filled with heroes, by the way. Heroes like the missionary Hudson Taylor, so unlike other missionaries, whose legacy lives on in the millions of Chinese who have become Christians. But the legacy there also includes missionary pretenders and several centuries of oppression and exploitation by multiple colonial powers. This one part of the world serves to illustrate how we got to where we are, why the vision of Jesus has been so blurry. Okay, so I've tried at length here to explain why it's a relevant question and how we got here. Now, let's pivot, and I want to go back to the original blueprint. I want to look at the beginning of the church and what God intended for the church. So turn your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 2, and it's page 909 in the Pew text. As you're looking there, I'll give you the context. The context is that Jesus has resurrected. He has ascended to heaven. He has instructed the disciples to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And this day, the day the Holy Spirit came upon them, is known as the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection. It is a day God poured His Spirit out on the church, beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they, the disciples, were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, meaning a very wide representation of multi-ethnic, multicultural people. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are we not those who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we are not those who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, Elamites, the residents and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Proselytes were not ethnic Jews, but had converted to Judaism as Gentiles, Cretans, and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now we witness here an amazing phenomenon. People had gathered from different nations and regions at a festival in Jerusalem. Persians, Syrians from the Middle East, Africans, Asians, Aramaeans, and Europeans. They all hear... They all hear Jesus' disciples miraculously praising God in their own language, in their own dialect even. 
Now, why is this significant besides the Pentecostal experience? Now, I really got a lot of help here from two sermons, one by J.D. Greer, who's the uh, president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and one by Tim Keller. And I found their thoughts really insightful. J.D. Greer said this about this passage. The first time the gospel was preached, it was preached in all languages simultaneously. I want you to think about that. The first time the gospel is preached, it is preached in all languages simultaneously. What does that mean? What are the implications? Let's think about this in relation to Islam. And I want to quote here a professor at Yale, a professor from Africa. I think we'll see his picture here in a, in a moment. He died just actually January of this year. His name is Lamine Sene. Again, a professor from Africa, he served at Yale. He also used to be a Muslim. And he says that Muslims will tell you quickly that the Koran cannot be translated. You say, wait a minute, I've read it in English. Well, that is a paraphrase. The actual words of God are Arabic. As far as Muslims are concerned, God speaks Arabic. If you want to hear God's word, you need to learn Arabic. And when Islam comes in, remember, these are his words, not mine. When Islam comes in, it slowly replaces the culture with its own Arabic culture. When the gospel was preached for the first time, however, it was preached in all languages at once, showing that no single culture or language is the right one. And thus, when the gospel comes into a place, it doesn't erase the culture, it redeems it. Sine says no other religion does that. Other religions tend to erase culture. And he said, by the way, as a professor at Yale, I see that it's not just other religions that do that. Secularism does it too. For all their talk of diversity, he says, Harvard and Yale are interested in producing only different colored European liberals. Oh, they prize diversity in dress and food, but as far as worldview, you're expected to think and approach the world like them. For example, he said, the, African, the average African sees a very spiritual side to the world. But when an African goes to Harvard, they are told the world does not have spirits and miracles. Harvard guts their Africanness. Christianity helps Africans become renewed Africans, not remade Europeans. Christianity accepts the reality of the spirit world, but it removes the tendency in African culture towards superstition and violence. How does it do that? Because it shows Christ the victor over all evil spirits, and it is through love and service, not violence and manipulation, that we experience change and victory. The gospel, unlike other religions, says that no culture or language is inherently superior, and that means no one culture has a worship style or an expression of the Christian faith or a language that is normative for everyone. As Jesus followers, we are part of his global family. 
through, the, through uniting with others who do church differently, who practice a little differently, who use a different language to explain their experience with God, we, when we unite with them, we learn what is truly essential. Secondary cultural expressions need not divide us or cause us to judge other believers. If you or me judged Coptic Christians, for example, those are Christians from Egypt, they've been around a long time, because they use different language or they dress a little funny or they describe their devotion to God in a different way, you know, we had to think twice about judging them. It was 21 Coptic Christians who lost their heads, refusing to renounce Jesus to Islamic radicals. Through unity with the global church, God builds into us an internal humility, something that works against our unconscious drift towards self-righteousness. This happens when we recognize how the Spirit is moving through the global church, and it looks different than here. So you see, what I'm trying to say is the big idea is that we have a blueprint in the birthday of the church of what Jesus' family would look like, and it's multi-ethnic, and it's multicultural, and it takes humility to sustain it. That was the blueprint of the early church. So let's move forward a couple hundred years. Let's move into about two or three hundred it's important for us to realize there were three large centers of the Christian faith. We, of course, learn about the history of the church in Rome, what eventually became the Roman Catholic Church. But there were also very strong centers of Christianity in Africa, in what was called Nubia then, which eventually became Ethiopia, and often and also in Persia. I love this quote by John Ames. He's a young, he's white, he's a Baptist church planter in Providence, Rhode Island. And he pastors in a neighborhood largely made up of ethnic minorities. And he says, it is not uncommon for me to have my message dismissed, to hear the objection that the Christian faith is a white man's religion meant to oppress ethnic minorities. And he's so passionate about this. He knows it's an unfounded distortion. And he wrote this about, uh, after research, from his own research, he wrote this. John Ames wrote, The truth of the Christian faith is that it began with the people in the Middle East, making the skin tone brown, not white. The Messiah who came to die and take away the sins of the world was born a Jewish man in an area between Syria, Jordan, and Egypt most likely making him someone of a brown complexion. Perhaps the first Gentile convert to Christianity was an Ethiopian man who had black skin and is rumored to have been responsible for starting the first churches on the African continent. You can read his story in Acts 8. The elder board at the first church established in Antioch, where people were first called Christians, was made up of Middle Eastern brown-skinned men and black a black-skinned man from the Africa territory of Niger. Again, you can read that story, Acts 13, verses 1 and 2. Many of the early church fathers and theologians who compiled the Bible planted churches 
and developed Christian thought were brown-skinned North Africans, Tertullian, Origen, Athanasius, Athanasius, and Augustine. Perhaps the most accurate claim of the Christian faith is that it began with brown and black-skinned people. So, we have a blueprint from the Scriptures. We have the reality of the early church. What about today? What about today? Is the, is the church hold up? Is it just kind of ca- caved in in the United States and Canada and Europe? Is that really what it is? Let's look at the facts. In the Middle East, Iran is the home of the fastest growing Christian movement of the world. Iraq is home, you know this from watching the news, Iraq is home to one of the oldest continuing Christian communities in the world. Churches began long before the foundation of Islam. Some of those communities, as you know, were stamped out by ISIS. But their very existence for centuries undermines the notion that Christianity is only a product of the West. Does the Christian faith belong in India? Well, the current government pushing Hindu nationalism would say no. Yet there are many Christians in India, particularly southern India, and tradition has it dating back to the first century. It is believed by many that the disciple Thomas traveled there to begin the church in India. Ironically, it is the diversity of the Christian faith that has made it appealing in India, for the church has reached those in the caste system. I understand McLaughlin writes this, that India is now trying to remove the caste system. But it is inherent in the Hindu worldview. Christianity, which was able to reach the lowest class of Rome, slaves, also has has appealed to those at the very bottom of the caste system. Why is that? Because the Christian faith has an inherent power to dignify the downtrodden. It has a built-in impulse to raise the value of every human life. Indeed, and there is much data to verify this, Christianity, when it is let loose in a culture, has a democratizing effect. When the Christian faith is let loose in a culture, it often leads to political and economic democracy because it raises the downtrodden. So, finally, China. We've told the story here. There are now an estimated 70 million Christians in China. That's a conservative estimate. And it continues to grow, even though atheism remains the formal policy of the country, even though it is a requirement, atheism, for party membership. And yet there are experts that predict in a few decades China will have more Christians than the United States. So I ask you the question, do the facts bear it out when we talk about the origin of Christianity, its early history, and its presence today? And I've not even mentioned how the Christian faith, where it's growing the most, is in Africa and Central and South America, particularly uh, an evangelical Protestant faith. And so I ask the question, do the facts bear it out? Is the Christian faith a white man's religion? You know, to assert this, 
to assert this, and I say this with some caveat because I recognize uh, this is particularly true of the secular left. To assert this, one actually has to have a very ethnocentric view of the world. When you hear a secular professor enunciate this, you must recognize he or she has an ethnocentric view of the world. They do not have a global view of the world. Stephen Carter is a very famous Yale law professor. He chides the secular left for this belief that Christianity is a white man or a Western religion. He says that in actuality, in the United States, black women are by far the most Christian demographic. And around the globe, the people most likely to be Christians are women of color. So Carter says to the secularist, secularist, when you mock Christians, you're not mocking who you think you are. Rebecca McLaughlin, the author of this book, she concludes this chapter by saying, the Christian faith is the most diverse, multi-ethnic, and multicultural movement in history. It began that way, and it will end that way. Turn your Bibles to Revelation 7, verse 9. As you turn there, remember to keep this in mind, is that we become like what we worship. We become like the one that we worship. If you worship money, or if you worship sex, or if you worship power, it's going to bend you in strange, distorted ways. Or if you worship country, if you worship the American culture, by the way, to worship means to give something supreme value. It means to make something the supreme good. But when we worship, whatever we worship, we become like. And when we begin to worship God and see His heart, it totally changes the way we see the world, the way we see one another. And Revelation 7-9 tells us the end of the story. This is the kind of God we worship. Revelation 7-9 and 10, the writer John, who has a vision of heaven, writes this. He says, After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, nation here in the book of Revelation literally means ethnic entity. From every ethnic entity, all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and standing before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation does not belong in Rome. Salvation does not belong to a political power. Salvation is not in our own strength, our own resources, our own wisdom, our own education. Salvation is not in our military might. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You see, here's the point, friends. God gets so 
much glory. When all this diversity, those with so many differences, cultural and ethnic and language, come together and they all mutually recognize His universal beauty, worth, and majesty. When that happens, when worship takes place, every sense of self-righteousness or justification of self-worth tied to culture or ethnicity just slips away and slides away. The cross, the resurrection, the life of Jesus is like a beautiful piece of music that when you hear it, regardless of where you are from, of what language you speak, or the color of your skin, you stop and you listen and you stand there in awe. Because the music both penetrates your soul and at the same time lifts it to heaven. That is what the story of Jesus does. The gospel. And it's doing it all over the world from Iran to Iraq, to India, to China, to Africa, to Central America, to Columbus, Ohio. The beauty of God has a universal language and a transcendent beauty that every eye can behold and can see and believe in and worship. It's available to us. That is why we worship Him alongside of every culture and why in heaven we will worship Him alongside every other culture. We are all brought together and made one before the cross. This is the heart of God. This is the plan of God. This is the decree of God. He will do it. He is doing it. He will bring it about. We come as one before the risen Jesus. Next time you hear this objection, next time you hear this, I encourage you to think about the big picture, to think about the story, the multicultural, multi-ethnic vision of Jesus' family. It is beautiful and it is wonderful. We're going to celebrate that this morning. We're going to celebrate him. We're going to celebrate and listen to the beauty of this music through the taking of the bread and the drinking of the juice. The bread representing his body and the cup representing his juice. You go ahead, ushers, and you can begin to release, them, release, release our friends. Go ahead and take it back to your seat. We'll take it together. So hold on to the elements. We'll take it all together. It really is an amazing Deep love that we celebrate this morning.